0: This is the East
1: TraumaCast Trauma with your moderators, Kevin Pay from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah,
2: and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
1: This program brought to you by
2: the online education section of the
3: Eastern Association for the Surgery of
2: Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers.
0: Uh, This is Matt Martin with the TraumaCast. We've got a really uh, special podcast today. Um, First, I'm going to introduce our uh, guest. This is Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Gurney. She is a trauma surgeon in the U.S. Army, and she's currently at the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research in San Antonio, Texas, uh, where she's the Chief of Trauma Systems Development. Uh, So first of all, thanks a lot for joining us, Jen.
4: Yeah, Matt, thank you so much. Much appreciated.
0: Uh, So today's trauma cast is a recording from the MHSRS meeting, and that's uh, our big military health research meeting, uh, called the Case Records of the JTS. Uh, Hopefully this is going to become a recurring series, uh, but first off, Jen, do you just want to explain for everyone, especially non-military, what the JTS is?
4: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. So the joint trauma system stemmed out of the joint theater trauma system, which was essentially a group of senior surgeon years ago at the beginning of the war when they brought um, nurses and themselves down into Iraq and Afghanistan and started collecting data. And that data has really been the driver of so much change in you know, military and civilian trauma surgery. And that uh, data is in our registry, which is a DOD trauma registry. And the Joint Trauma System. Now, since we don't have a deployed element, uh, the Joint Trauma System is in San Antonio, and really we're a performance improvement organization where we look at every record uh, still going on in the Iraq and Afghanistan and other theaters of operation, and we review things. Uh, they go into the registry, and we provide real-time feedback for performance improvement. That's one of our. That's probably our main focus. And then the other one is certainly education. We have our Thursday call. Uh, every every Thursday at 7 a.m. Central Time all around the world it's in Germany it's in theaters of operation where people call in and we review trauma patients uh, and then we also have a CME discussion but so education is the other arm of the joint trauma system and the case records of the joint trauma system really stemmed out of a need for reviewing these challenging cases that have been managed really well for the last 15 years and as much research and performance improvement as we do from the from the registry, I really think, and I think a lot of our colleagues think, that there's plenty to be learned from looking at individual cases, the pitfalls, the pearls, and things that surgeons who have deployed have done to manage some of these incredibly challenging cases from point of injury all the way back to care in the, in the states. So that's what we're doing is we're going through – we're taking a panel of experts, of which Matt was one of the experts on the inaugural session, and we're asking them to um, prospectively manage some of these legacy cases.
0: And so so tell us how you're where you're getting these cases from and, and how you're getting the data and the information.
4: So the cases all come directly from the registry, the, the DOD trauma registry, which used to be known as the jitters the Joint Cedar Trauma Registry. And we go through them. So I've solicited surgeons who have been deployed for their interesting cases. I've used some cases that I've had on my deployments, and we just are start making. We're making these case files. So any surgeons who are hearing this who've been deployed, if you have one of those fantastic cases, please get in touch with me, um, and and we will be sure to add that to our case records of the Joint Trauma System series. So they're all, and and you know. While we can embellish some things, um, we don't. I'm really trying to stay very, very strict to the case, how it was managed from point of injury care back to the states. And looking back at them retrospectively, I mean, the lessons learned are just absolutely incredible. And, you know, I think that going forward as the operational tempo decreases, there's a lot of benefit to looking at the management of these challenging cases.
0: And so what do you think the benefit of, of these sessions would be to a civilian audience, uh, you know, who's who's not active military and maybe, you know, has not deployed or never deployed? Do you think there's any educational benefit for them?
4: Well, I mean, I think there is. Trauma is trauma anywhere, and, and certainly we have to be innovative even in civilian trauma, um, not necessarily because it's resource-limiting, but because, I mean, it can be sometimes, I suppose, but because sometimes these injuring, injuries are so... Challenging, So I think that, I mean, I think there's always benefit to hear about, you know, as a as military member, I always go to these sessions at AAST or the American College of Surgeons. Hearing how other surgeons think about things and how they problem solve, I think, is educational for everyone, military or civilian.
0: And so we're about to listen to the inaugural session. Uh, and tell us about your, your plans for this uh not for this session, but for the future for the case records program.
4: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. So um, ideally, the joint trauma system, we at the joint trauma system, would like to see this going forward and certainly at the military meetings, but also at civilian meetings. You know, now there's, there's a national push that's looking at combining military and civilian trauma systems. And every civilian trauma surgeon that I've had the privilege of working with I feel as interested in how we do things. And so I think at at even at civilian meetings, not just at the military sessions, but at the general sessions to have a panel like this, a combined military and civilian panel looking at some of these legacy cases and and really troubleshooting the management prospectively and then seeing how um how we did in the past is is incredibly beneficial. So I hope that this is something that sustains into the future and that we can see it at future military and civilian meetings
0: okay and, and we're gonna plan on, on hosting as many of these sessions the audio portion on, on the East trauma cast program um, so I think we'll we will go ahead and listen to this inaugural session uh, I think it was it was a great learning experience uh, and I uh, really want to congratulate Jen on uh, re- putting this program together uh, and this has really been her vision uh, in making this happen um, so any final words or thoughts for the listeners uh, about this uh, case records program, Jen? Uh,
4: well, thank you. Thank you so much for hosting it and for East trauma Cast for host- hosting it. And, you know, at the end of this session, we ran out of time during the inaugural case records at the MHSRS conference. But my thank you was not just to everybody who participated, but thank you to all the surgeons over the last, you know, 15 years who have who have deployed and worked hard and and on these cases, and then ultimately to the service members who go out and who do these incredibly risky jobs, and one day they may end up being our patient. And you know, I really hope that something like this can continue so we can continue as a group, as an organization, as a group of surgeons to learn and continue to support the warfighter. And thanks again, Matt. Really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot for giving us that intro, Jen. Uh, We're now going to play the audio from that session. Uh, On the EAST website, on the TraumaCast page, we will also have a link uh, with uh, Dr. Gurney's contact information. So, again, if if any of you out there have some some great cases from your experiences that you'd want to submit, she's certainly looking for any suggestions and especially looking for any accompanying material like pictures or videos. Is that correct, Jen?
4: Yep, perfect.
0: All right. Well, let's listen to this inaugural session.
5: Okay, good afternoon. We'll go ahead and get started a little bit late. Thank you all so much for joining us at the inaugural session of the Joint Trauma Systems case records. Given how good the food has been this meeting, it's fantastic that we have anybody here to listen to these case presentations. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Gurney. I'm a trauma surgeon at the ISR. My co-moderator. Dr. John Holcomb really needs no introduction, but in case you've missed the last 15 years of advancement in combat and trauma surgery, Dr. Holcomb is a retired Army trauma surgeon whose contributions have been numerous. Uh, he's currently a trauma surgeon at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, professor of surgery, and the director of the Center for Translational Injury Research. Thanks very much for co-moderating today. Looking forward to it. So we're going to be discussing cases that have occurred in the recent wars. Whatever the panel members say, while it may be brilliant, does not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Defense. And in terms of these cases, they are very strictly from the DOD trauma registry. The cases and x-rays will be presented as accurately as possible. However, a few of the photos you'll see are not of the actual patient being presented, but from teaching files, given that during many of these events, photo opportunities were not possible. So if I were to properly introduce our fantastic and esteemed panel, we would have no time to go through any of the cases. They're all tried and tested combat trauma surgeons whose accomplishments are truly amazing and their deployment experience ranges from the very beginning of the war to just a few months ago. Dr. Val Sams, Val is an Air Force uh, trauma surgeon who recently returned from Afghanistan, associate program director at the San Antonio Military Medical Center Trauma Fellowship. Dr. Jenkins is a trauma surgeon currently at the University of Texas San Antonio. He's renowned for his contributions to the development of the evacuation and theater trauma system. Dr. Ray Fang, at the end, is a trauma surgeon currently at C-STARS program in Baltimore. He was a director of the trauma program at Launchville Regional Medical Center during some of its busiest years, and Ray continues to influence trauma care across the spectrum. Dr. Matt Martin, sitting next to Dr. Fang, is an Army trauma surgeon at Madigan Hospital, is the Army State Chair for the Committee on Trauma, and has made numerous contributions to combat casualty care, including authoring the book, Frontline Surgery. Dr. Rory Ricard is a UK trauma surgeon and captain in the Royal Navy. He's a defense professor of military sur- surgery. In addition to his many achievements, he was a deployed medical director at Camp Bastion in 2014. And Dr. Avi Eitzik is a trauma surgeon in Israel and is a head of the trauma and combat branch of the Israeli Defense Force. He's been the chief physician for the Israeli Special Forces and was the chief medical officer of the Gaza Division in the Israeli Southern Command. Thank you guys in advance for putting yourselves on the spot today, and we look forward to what you have to say. Our agenda today is to discuss trauma cases and see how this panel of experts will manage the patients. There may be some differing opinions which will make this kind of fun. Now on your chairs when you came in, there are surveys, please fill them out. If you turn them in, you might have a chance to win a JTS t-shirt. Uh, the surveys will be collected at the back of the room. T-shirt aside, we do really want your opinion and feedback on this session, so please take some time to let us know your thoughts. The primary, oh, and yeah, and put your email on the survey if you want the T-shirt. The primary, thank you, thank you, Gina. (laughs) The primary focus of the case records of the joint trauma system is that, so the lessons learned will not be forgotten. So our rules of engagement, we will not discuss tactical, strategic, or operational information. And after each case, there will be some time for the audience to ask questions. This is an educational critique of care, not at all a criticism of the care provided. Additionally, given the tremendous advancements that our research community has given clinicians, we hope that these case presentations will inform and help identify areas for potential research and combat casualty care. Okay, panel members, so here we are. Here's our scenario. You are at a roll three hospital, in Afghanistan with a high operational tempo. At your hospital, you have robust surgical and blood product capabilities and support. It is dirty, dusty, hot, and busy. (laughs) Casualties are usually brought to you by helicopter, but sometimes brought to you by ground. At your roll three hospital, multiple casualty incidents are not uncommon. Now going inside. Your patients are brought from the helicopter landing pad to the emergency department. Some days are busier than others, but this is what you prepare for.
6: Okay. So we've done the, uh, we've described the roll three. We have uh, the description of the services available, the situation is a motor vehicle rollover, troops were in contact, small arms fire and artillery fire uh, ensued. There are multiple casualties, medevac in progress, and two urgent surgical patients and four priority patients. The uh, time of injury is a little bit after seven in the morning, 27-year-old male, active duty, motor vehicle crash rollover, multiple casualties, patient pulled back into the vehicle to avoid continued small arms fire. On clinical exam is noted to have bilateral upper extremity fractures, hypotensive with pressure of 90, heart rates 90, respiratory rate 20, GCS of 15, no sensation to the uh, arm, right shoulder has a bulky dressing, right lower extremity gunshot wound with dressing applied, three minute flight to roll three. So arrives at uh, 0806, airways patent, heart rate 82, blood pressure's higher, now at 101, and 100% sat on 10 liters 0 two, GCS of 15, and C collar placed secondary to mechanism. Secondary survey is, as you can see, a lot of contamination, the guy's pretty dirty, left humerus deformity, right shoulder open fractured, no pulses in the right upper extremity, Gunshot wound the right lower leg, anterior mid-tibia, full range of motion, pulses, distal pulses intact. Abdominal exam is non-tendered, fast is negative.
5: <laughs> okay, so, go ahead, sir.
7: So, Dr. Fang, next up. So I would say that uh, we're being in a uh, hostile environment, and uh, the first thing we need to do is even before the patient enters our facility, we should probably decon them, make sure that they don't have any weapons or ordnance still on them because they came out of a hot uh, combat zone. And, uh, and then at the outside the hospital is where we should do our initial triage and see if we concur with the medic's assessment. Um, because once they get into the hospital, it's hard to get them out, and we really want to reserve uh, the people coming into the hospital, those who really need to get there immediately for some sort of intervention. Great comments.
6: Would anybody do anything differently? Would anybody do anything differently?
2: Uh, I would get a chest x-ray, and then this person is going to the OR.
6: So immediately to the OR after a chest x-ray.
8: Can, can, I, can I interject different? on that one? So you've told me you've got two patients coming. Um, I haven't seen the size of the operating room capability.
6: So extensive OR capabilities. Okay. Uh, and nobody else is in the OR.
8: Right now. And this, so we've got capacity to do more than one case at a yes. time. Okay. Then I don't agree. I don't
3: disagree so far.
6: Anybody else? Yes, sir, obviously.
3: Um, maybe I'm lacking a few of the information regarding any kind of pre-hospital resuscitative measures that have been. Uh, Performed like giving uh, plasma FTP or hexacapron, which is the tranexamic acid. Uh, This is a guy who is obviously uh, who has bled and uh, he's with 90 uh, systolic. Um, It's important to take him to the OR to fix his problems, but I think uh, I would do some measures of resuscitation before taking him to the OR
6: any comments
5: on that? Yeah, no, all good comments. So, um, so he, we don't have any pre-hospital information on this patient given when uh, his injury occurred. And uh, they did get a chest X-ray. Chest X-ray is normal on this patient. The chest X-ray is normal. And then here are his X-rays. Uh, screen right is his right extremity, upper extremity. Screen left is his left upper extremity. And the two yellow arrows represent what the very large open wound was stuffed with combat gauze. So we already know that Dr. Martin is, uh, wants to take this patient directly to the OR. Um, I want to know, Dr. Sams, do you want to get any further imaging on this patient? Uh, uh, he did get resuscitated well. His heart rate stayed in the 90s, and his blood pressure is 120 over 85.
1: Okay. I, I think even though he's GCS-15, he's sitting at a large contaminated scalp wound. So if we had time and the capability, I would at least get a head CT before going to the operating room.
6: So, Dr. Martin, you want to get a chest X-ray and go to the OR. Where are you going to operate? What part of his body?
2: So, sorry, chest x-ray and the extremity films. I mean, he needs the fracture addressed. He's got an avascular right arm, so that's going to be the first stop. He's got an open wound. That needs to be explored. The vascular injury is either shunted or repaired. He has a GCS-15 and no other signs of head injury. I wouldn't waste any time on getting this guy revascularized. I wouldn't stop for a head CT. I would just take him to the OR.
6: Patient was hypotensive pre-hospital uh, and, let's say, received TXA and a unit of plasma, a unit of red cells. Negative fast, does that rule out intra-abdominal bleeding?
2: Uh, negative fast and physical exam in the alert reliable patient. I, I, would not, I would not stop in the CT scan to get a CT
6: of the abdomen. Who wants to get a CAT scan?
5: <laughs> Dr. Martin stands alone. Army of one, right? Army of one. <laughs> oh, uh,
6: let,
2: me add, let me add a caveat. It also depends who's doing the fast and if it's truly a high-quality
7: negative fast exam. There's the waffle. So, uh, <laughs> so, I would make, so uh, again, the tactical situation is that there can be additional casualties en route. And uh, you said how many operating tables do we have?
5: You have four operating four rooms. Operating.
7: All right. And we have, four, we have the ability to do four operations simultaneously. Dr. Jenkins, you've been very
9: quiet. Yeah, well, I don't agree with Dr. Fang. that We should be worried about the next casualty. We should take care of the casualty we have before us. can't do anything about people we don't know and aren't aren't, aren't with us. So we're going to focus on this guy. Uh, If you've got the capability, uh, we're going to use that capability. We're going to get a uh, high-fidelity CTA uh, on this. But, you know, step one, John, I learned this in the Boy Scouts, would be to reduce the fracture and see if the pulse comes back.
6: So re- fracture was reduced and pulse did not come back. It's a great comment. All right,
5: next slide. Yeah, it's a great comment. So they did choose to get a CT scan. Um, they did not have the capability to do a CTA at this point, but they got a CT scan. Uh, actually, they did do a CTA. I take that back. Yeah. I'm wrong. Um, and they, you can see on the CT scan, I don't know if it projects well, we have the arrows showing us mm-hmm. he's got a small left pneumothorax. They followed the CT scan with some reconstructions. Uh, And uh, can you guys see this okay? Dr. Martin, can you read this uh, film for us? Can you see it all right, sir?
2: I didn't need the film. He's got a right upper (laughs) extremity vascular injury, just like we found on our physical exam. (laughs) And and an occult pneumothorax we didn't need to know about.
7: So I I wanted to add the comment that uh, when you do have limited resources... Um, I would save the operating room for those who are in danger of immediate exsanguination and death. If you have a vascular injury, although it is very true that the earlier that you revascularize it, uh, the better their chance there is for limb salvage. But if they're not hemorrhaging from their uh, extremity vascular injury, uh, then that potentially could wait until you exclude that there are other patients who come in with an extremis from hemorrhage.
6: So in Israel, what would we do with this guy? Robert.
3: Yeah, well, uh, the thing is, this guy came in uh, with a dramatic shock uh, um, manifestation, and after I resuscitate him, I have two questions. Uh, whether he has uh, uh, received back his vital signs back to normal and he's staying stable, and the other is, is there any limb-threatening injury that he has sustained? So. The CT, uh, I would like to challenge that because the CT might give me additional information, but in, in, in uh, a patient who is completely stable and fast is negative, I would like to challenge the idea of performing a CT. And uh, secondly, I really don't need uh, this uh, reconstruction, 3D reconstruction to, to know that he has a vascular injury. So if we have um, reduced the fracture and pulse doesn't get back, then we'd uh, take him to the OR and see what's going on there.
8: Mm-hmm. Anybody else any comments? Yeah. So, um, can I, can I, I, mean, I wanted some learning points from this. I think the evidence that we have in terms of FAST versus CT is that obviously FAST is less sensitive than CT. So um, you're familiar with it, obviously, I don't know in the audience, but familiar with the concept of spins and snouts. So a sensitive test rules something out and a specific test rules something in um, and the trouble with FAST in terms of diagnosing cavity bleeding is that it's very operator-dependent and then therefore is less sensitive than CT. And in a patient of the, uh, like this with uh, these multiple injuries, we would put him through um, what we uh, termed an Afghanistan and, and put him through the CT scanner to direct us not necessarily what to do, what, but really to what not to do. Um, So for me this patient would go through the CT scanner. Um, I think with the description of the capability uh, in terms of four tables and a large ER, uh, two patients that you're expecting. Um, Although with a mind uh, that there are troops still in contact. Um, I think it would be reasonable to take this patient to theater to revascularize the epidemic.
6: Yeah, just to comment on, this, on the FAST exam, we agree completely with you. A positive FAST is very useful to translate that your sensitivity, specificity, ROC, into clinical terms. Positive test is useful. A negative FAST, because it's a screening exam, is almost like it's not done. Fully 30% of massive transfusion patients will have intra-abdominal bleeding and a negative FAST. All right,
9: so CAT scan's done. Yeah, so if you go back to those images, and this is what I would talk, ask Matt about, is that there's no way that I would predict that proximal injury. Right. Uh, and uh, I fear that uh, a direct, if you have this capability and you don't use it, uh, you're going to be somewhere between that fracture and the open wound digging around in a vessel uh, and not address the proximal injury.
6: So, so you that's understand. a good can point, I, Dr. Uh, Jenkins. Don, can I summarize that by saying you know he's got a vascular injury. You reduce the fracture. You didn't get a pulse back, but now you got to figure out where to put your incision, right? Very different with a distal axillary brachial versus a distal subclavian yeah. injury. It, well, he has an he has an open wound there, an open contaminated
2: wound with a fractured dislocation. You, you know where the injury is. It, it's not a huge mystery. There's no scenario you're not going to be exploring that wound. And you know there's a vascular injury. They have no pulse. You're going to get proximal control. So, again, I just don't see where the CTA adds much information to what you're going to do. All right. Let's go.
5: Okay. So at this point, where are we? Does everybody agree that the patient will go to the operating room? You have no other... There's only one choice here, so you kind of have to agree. <laughs> so, yeah. When there's well, well, more than one choice, they'll show up. <laughs> yeah.
2: well, I, I don't, do we have an MRI we can run them through too.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and some of
6: them, yeah, they
2: did.
5: <laughs> so uh, now before this patient goes to the operating room, does he need a chest tube? Uh, he had that small pneumothorax that was seen on CT scan but not on chest X-ray. And what do you do first, a vascular injury or that terrible orthopedic injury? And how are you going to manage your vascular injury, and are you going to do an
1: arteriogram? Dr. Stams? you're yeah. holding the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I do want to make a couple comments on um, some comments that were made. I think uh, the logistics of, um, I, I don't agree that you just have to focus on the patient in front of you completely. I, I think that's your focus, but um, knowing the logistics of what's coming behind you and, and understanding what your mascal plan in your facility is and what the, Uh, rhythm for getting patients through and a CT scan is literally a couple of minutes and it's on the way to the operating room, at least where I was. So um, with that being said, I think for this, I, I think the CT scan is helpful because it does uh, look for other injuries. You, know, you already know you're going to be operating on the arm to revascularize the arm, but um ruling out other areas of concern. Because if this patient gets hypotensive in the operating room because they've already been hypotensive once, um, you know, are you going to lap his belly but the whole time he had a tension pneumo? Um, so I think that was important to recognize. And I probably would place a chest tube um, at that time because you're also look, thinking down the road this patient's going to be evacuated. Um, and they're going to need the chest tube for that anyway, one so I would con- place that. of the I agree the with time.
6: One of the important things here, this is a blunt and penetrating patient. Mm-hmm. You could easily have a transected aorta, right, uh, thoracic or blunt injury, rollover, uh, most of the guys weren't wearing any kind of restraints, so probably thrown around inside, and then was shot. And so it allows you to sort this out a little bit and do planning. In the patient, as, as Robby said, it has time to plan for.
5: And in the patient at the roll three that has a CT scan. If you're at a roll two, you don't have that option. Okay, so the patient So hang on. The, uh, yeah.
9: We've got to address one, one more thing here, is that uh, as you prepare for this operation, uh, no hidden wounds, right? So nothing gets covered over. Uh, He's got that lower extremity gunshot that could come back to bite you if it starts to bleed. Uh, It hasn't been bleeding so far. Uh, And uh, so this is going to be a, you know, chin to uh, toes, uh, table to table uh, prep uh, so you can have access to all those wounds and all the uh, veins and uh, watch for bleeding.
5: So two lessons learned so far. Dr. Sam mentioned situational awareness, always hugely important depending on your operative tempo, downrange, and then what Dr. Jenkins has said. You gotta look everywhere. Okay, so might,
6: might be important later on.
5: Yes. Yes. In <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes, indeed. So, um, so Dr. Jenkins, are you going to shunt or repair? and Are you going to let ortho do their thing first, or are uh, are you going to do your thing first?
9: Uh, if there's a hemorrhage, that we're going to get hemorrhage control and shunt. We'll let uh, the orthopedists uh, debride and put on an external fixator and then depending upon how things are looking, potential for fasciotomies uh, in the uh, arm and forearm, uh, and uh, then talk about definitive repair.
5: Who's gonna let ortho do their procedure first on this panel? Who's gonna let ortho put the X-fix on to bring the arm out to length? Anybody?
8: So I think it very much depends on your orthopedic surgeon and your time from injury. Mm
5: -hmm. Okay. All right, so um, they did put a chest tube in this patient. Uh, on the left side that was vascularly intact, the, uh, they splinted the arm. There was no vascular compromise. They did a right upper extremity arteriogram, which did show the thrombosis of the distal subclavian proximal axillary. But they worked first to do an X-fix uh, prior to do any revascularization. Here's a picture of the arteriogram. Uh, the good thing is is it's already been read. For us. So it shows a right subclavian artery injection with an axillary artery thrombosis, which is what Dr. Martin said all along uh, that he would take this patient to the operating room for. He does have some reconstitution around the elbow. But what happened, as it does in many cases, the X fix took a little bit longer to place. Uh, and there are additional casualties coming in, and you need to get out of the operating room. Uh, in addition, the patient's getting acidotic, and their CK is almost 15,000. Dr. Fang.
7: So in, uh, in this situation, uh, you might have to do what we would term uh, damage control surgery. And it would be for two reasons. It would be for patient physiologic exhaustion, that they're acidotic, as well as your tactical situation is that you have additional casualties coming in that might need surgery for uh, exsanguination as well. Uh, we need to restore flow to this arm. Um, there was some collateral flow. Luckily, the axillary artery is one that uh, does have collaterals around it as opposed to your brachial artery, um, so he might have had some perfusion, but we, we need to get flow, um, so we would probably uh, shunt him at this point as a full uh, repair, either an end-to-end primary repair or some sort of graft using saphenous vein it would probably take way too long, and really our goal here is to restore flow, get him resuscitated. So. Uh, We could use any number of improvised shunts uh, that are available for other reasons, Argyle shunt, Javid shunt, whatever you happen to have. Uh, I do know that there is a military-driven initiative to create a trauma shunt, um, taking uh, into account a lot of the features uh, that uh, clinicians have desired in a shunt. Uh, But we would probably, again, get exposure and try to place a shunt if you can address the venous injury, that's not critical, but it can lead to better outflow and help your shunt patency and your uh, limb salvage as well. But uh, at this point, you probably would just shunt the arterial flow.
5: Would anybody not shunt? Does the he patient? have any
9: Doppler signals distally?
5: Um, they did not pick up any Doppler signals. I did not see that in the DODTR.
9: Has he got? Uh, he had capillary poor, refill? poor, no,
5: very poor capillary refill. His arm was a is compartment, is it again, forearm
9: or? compartment, tight.
5: Uh, yes, his forearm yeah. compartment was tight.
9: Yeah, so I think that uh, as, and I'd be talking to the anesthesiologist, are they having to uh, transfuse him? Does he have uh, coagulopathy on TAG? You know, where are we in that uh, sort of scheme of things? Because of what I'm thinking is if we do a fasciotomy and we can get some signals in his hand, uh, then uh, even shunting may be unnecessary at this, uh, at this point. So fasciotomies were done and signals did not improve, and the muscles He need to be shunted.
6: So, so just to clarify, so they, they did the X-fix before they shunted?
2: They did. So they just let ortho go yeah, so, And so you guys let them do that.
1: Okay. Well,
2: well, I think this, this is a great example because, I mean, look at the delays here with a dysvascular right. arm. We scanned them, got a CTA, then we did an arteriogram. Right. So we now have two high-quality images to confirm what we should have known just by physical exam when we could have had this guy in the OR shunted him and been done when these next casualties are coming
3: in. Who likes Dr. Martin's answer? Right. I kind of do, too, but, yeah. then, you
5: know, I wear the same uniform, right? So I, mean.
3: uh, I think this guy is uh, experiencing already his uh, second insult, uh, physiologic insult. He's already uh, in the starting to be uh, acidotic and in the lethal threat. so there's no other way other than bail out with a temporary shunt, whether it be argyle shunt or NG tube and just bail out.
5: Well, I'm glad you brought up NG tube. So this patient did get a shunt. And I just wanted to hear from the panel members if you guys have any tricks that you want to share with the audience, tricks to use shunts. Have you ever used an improvised shunt? Uh, any thoughts about shunting these injuries and, and uh, tricks about it? Tricks of the trade. Or you, sir, tricks of the trade.
6: Let's go ahead sir. What, what shunt do you like? Uh,
3: uh, any tube, but major tubes work fine. Okay. I,
1: see. I don't have a preference, and I only had one option, so I used that one,
5: which is? Which is the... Um, Argyle. Argyle, yep,
8: that's what comes of the FST. So whatever you have available, um, with the consideration that some of the improvised shunts really can be quite stiff and unmalleable and difficult to use, but really whatever's going to transmit the, uh, the flow.
2: Yeah, and I would say the, the standard carotid shunt set gives you a wide variety of sizes. You know, it's small. I, every deployment, I hand-carried a couple of those in just to make sure we had them. and and those will work for most peripheral vessels. I think the the main point is that the two things you worry about are the shunt clotting and the shunt dislodging. Mm -hmm. And of the two of those, the thing you really need to worry about is dislodging. So you really want to secure it proximally and distally with a good tie that's in place. If it clots, it clots, but if it dislodges during transport, then that patient can exsanguinate.
7: So I would say that uh, as a military surgeon in the deployment arena, you have to learn to just take whatever they give you because your favorite shunt is not going to be there. If you have your choice, I probably would use the Argyle, because that is what I'm most familiar with through training and pig models and things like that. Um, but really, in, in all your instrument sets, you just need to learn to take whatever they give you and be happy with it.
6: Yeah, so I would add to that, go to look at the instrument set ahead of time, right? Yeah. When there's not a patient on the table and figure out what they do have, right? So you can kind of make those plans.
7: I think Another that's- comment I would make about the overall scenario, though, is again, I think it's very important, us surgeons, uh, we like to jump in there and start doing the operating room, uh, operation, but again, just like the person running an ACLS code needs to kind of stand back and have an overall knowledge of what's going on, when the meds are given, so the timing and whatnot, yeah. uh, okay. actually your senior surgeon should probably not be in the OR. They should be the one kind of moving people around and available to help the other surgeons as needed if they get into a tricky spot mm-hmm. in the case, uh, bouncing around. Uh, but they need to have the global awareness of what other casualties are coming in, what really are we prioritizing, the o, 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 OR order and things like that. Because once you're in the case, it's very hard to have awareness of what's going on and what's
5: happening on in, in your whole hospital. Second time we've heard situational awareness. Okay, now quickly, just, to, just a yes or no for this patient, because I want to move on and give the audience a chance to ask questions and go to our next case, if we can get to it. But I would say yes, fasciotomy. Yes, would you guys all do a fasciotomy? Yes, Yes, definitely
2: if they're being put in the EVAC chain, too, but with those CKs. If CKs were normal and you're going to observe them, you could argue not, but in the EVAC chain, yeah, liberal fasciotomies.
5: Okay, great. So uh, this uh, patient gets shunted uh, in the four hours after uh, his shunt. His shunt goes down, and what's going to be the next step? Uh, He's going to have to go back to the OR, right? So... I just want to know quickly, down, we can start with you, avi what 's the management of the arterial and venous injuries with these huge, huge soft tissue defects so this is going to be a, just going to have an X fix on, and I, we don 't have a picture of this injury, but just you saw the packing on the original x ray so a massive soft tissue injury associated with the vascular and bony injury. So how do you manage that? Do you fix the vein and how do you cover your soft tissue, and you each have twenty seconds?
3: Well, um, veins are um You know, they are, they can excuse you if you just like get them. Uh, I would like get the venous injuries and keep the shunt and, and maybe fill out the tissue defect somehow so that I can have a good platform to rest my.
1: Yeah, I think the difficulty, especially if it's already clotted once, I think the difficulty is the venous outflow went in these large soft tissue defects, because you've lost all venous outflow. So if you can um, repair that vein or restore uh, venous outflow, that's going to hopefully help you prevent clotting off that shunt again.
9: Yep, and uh, I, I agree with what you guys have said. Uh, you also uh, want to bring your uh, orthopedist uh, back around and see if there's a way to put, uh, move some tissue, loosen up some uh, and, and put some tissue over those repairs. I would
8: disagree. Um, I would repair the artery uh, with um, uh, autologous tissue. I might not do the vein, depending on the time and what else was going on. And I might not actually cover it, uh, as long as I think you can keep that wound clean and it's been properly debrided uh, to prevent a late uh, infectious uh, blowout. Then I think you can afford, as long as you can keep that um, you can keep that uh, graft moist. I don't think you need to immediately cover it.
2: And I'd say one of the things we do as trauma surgeons, we tend to think very literally of these vascular injuries. We remove a segment, and we put a graft in that exact spot, and our vascular colleagues probably realize this better, is you can route it through a different plane, and if you have the option, route it away from that injury. So do a bypass graft. Do not do it in situ through that bed of massive injury. If you can route it around that, get it out of that area, especially if you can't cover it.
7: So... um I would probably, again, ligate the veins. Again, your preference would be to repair them if, if possible. I would shunt the artery. Um, I would also, you know, it's life over limb, so we need to make an assessment also, is this a salvageable limb? Uh, I don't know how much soft tissue destruction, nerve function, bony fracture, uh, vascular injury, all combined. Um, we have to make a decision if this patient's gonna evac for a prolonged period of time. Again, whether they're gonna have more muscle necrosis that's gonna cause systemic injury. So uh, we need to make a tough decision here uh, as a group on whether this is a salvageable limb as well. Uh, We are always reluctant to amputate upper extremities because the prosthetics are not as functional as the lower. Uh, But in some cases, if there is a massive uh, uh, mangled extremity, uh, sometimes that that might just need to be amputated uh, to save the patient's life.
9: And and you also want to check the viability of that muscle where you did your fasciotomies.
5: Yep, all good points maybe over in more than 20 seconds, but all good points. So, um, so he uh, returned to the OR, they did a thrombectomy. At that point, they used autologous vein, and they also repaired the vein, extended the fasciotomy because the muscle did look dusky. And like you said, Dr. Jenkins, it's like maybe you've seen these cases before or something, they ask ortho to revise the exfix. Uh, he required a fair bit of resuscitation in the operating room, but he maintained hemodynamic stability. Again, he had a huge soft tissue defect, Uh, and you don't see the hardware on this as well. And then just the, the, we won't spend too much time on this. Uh, uh, Dr. Ricard, I thought your point was really good, that you don't always have to do something for soft tissue coverage. At this point, for this case, they did, uh, at this time during this operation, put a latissimus dorsi flap to cover this very large soft tissue defect and then a wound vac over that, and I will ask the panel in a second what they think of this. I mean, hindsight's always 2020, 20 and they were very concerned about the viability of this graft, and then the patient was brought by CCAT to launch stool on post-injury day three, th- so three days after injury, On post-injury day four, uh, arrived at Walter Reed, and the flap was non-viable, and the lat flap had to be removed, and uh, 12 days post-injury, they did an ORIF of the humerus, and a, the free flap was uh, placed, so... We had to have multiple additional coverage uh, operations to get soft tissue coverage. So uh, briefly, we can start with you, Dr. Fang, at the other end, give Avi a breakdown here. Um, just w- hindsight's 2020, 20, but in 10 seconds or less, um, what would you do to st- for some soft tissue coverage of this, or would you do soft tissue coverage?
7: Um, I think, again, if I'm in the deployed theater, I would not look for definitive soft tissue coverage. I would just uh, vac it, uh, put white sponge or whatever you would need to do to keep the uh, graft from desiccating or or getting injured by the actual negative pressure to the graft itself. Uh, But I would be a minimalist and try not to burn bridges that can be used for reconstruction later on. Okay. Agreed sure. oh, we
8: can the next Yeah, agreed, one. particularly if you're going to try and choose a soft tissue reconstruction It depends on one of the branches of the vessel that you've just repaired
9: uh, Hemodynamically stable, Steve Hetz is my partner We're going to put some uh, tissue on that
1: Yeah, I, I agree with the first few um, I don't think I would try to move anything
3: no. Sam, here.
5: Well, that's good. Those are less than 10 seconds, so those were acceptable answers. So this is, uh, this is the patient's final films. You can see the right side is one that had the multiple surgeries on it. You can tell by the staples. You can also see the bulky kind of soft tissue density and the left side as well. Okay, we have time for two questions, one or two questions from the audience of our esteemed panel members, uh, and then we're going to move on to our second case. Dr.
9: Cap. So uh, you all mentioned uh, various, you know, variations on wound back covering versus tissue covering. Do you think there's a research, um, a high research priority here for developing better temporary coverages for this sort of uh, vascular and soft tissue injury? Or do you yes. think that we have something adequate right now? Panel? Yes.
5: Yeah, That's a great point. Great point, Dr. Cap. Yeah, and
2: I, I mean that flap essentially acted as a biologic dressing, but unfortunately, that was also a potential option for later. So the flaps don't do well up front. So exactly. There's a big need for things that will function well as a biologic dressing, uh, you know, but don't take away a, an option for the patient later.
6: So one of the points in these cases is not to take away options, as Matt said. That includes the vein graft that's put in there. If the, if the latissimus flap dies, the vein graft might die. And it really starts limiting your opportunities, and so for further reconstruction. So there are enough people have written about out of combat injuries like this, not using vein, using artificial material. It's essentially a seven to ten day shunt, getting back to the rear, cleaning it up, then doing your latissimus flap and putting vein in. It's It's a nice concept. Yes, sir,
5: Colonel Sauer. So so I think
9: you described, at least the panel described, a logistics failure with regards to the availability of shunting in the field and having to bring shunts from the CONUS-based hospitals forward with you in order to accomplish mission. Could you expand on a little bit? Because I think that's something we could actually fix pretty quickly if we knew what to do.
5: Yeah, good point, Colonel Sauer. Thank you. Dr. Martin, you were the one that made the comment that you carry shunts from home.
2: Well, well I think – and, and – this was mostly probably at a role two level where you might not have any shunts or a very limited selection. I, I just think the principle is when you're deploying, the best thing you can do is contact the people who are there currently, ask them what do you have and what are you missing. And, and one of the things that often is missing, especially a role two, are supplies for vascular surgery
9: or vascular repairs. I don't know. It's a, so much a logistics failure as it is that we're surgeons and we trust no one and believe nothing. And I'm not going to go without taking some some stuff that I know that there's not really a good replacement for. Last
8: question. I think from the from the UK experience, actually, the logistics chain was so reactive at the end that it, it took three days to get something there from not ever having had it before. Uh, you obviously do have. You can't take every single piece of kit that every single individual surgeon wants to use. Um, so, actually, part of it is actually to accept that you are going to have to use something that is not your favorite piece of kit, as previously discussed. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we had a very good logistics chain. We didn't have that problem.
5: Okay, one more question. And sorry. The oh, other, sorry, and the other point ahead, is
8: actually that is one of the main capabilities that we have to preserve is yes, that sir. logistics reactivity.
5: Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah.
8: Last question.
0: So, I'm Mike and I'm one of Dr. Martin's residents. Um, Balancing the risk of shunt or graft thrombosis versus the risk of re-bleeding or potential bleeding, would the panel think giving heparin to this patient was something you would do or not do um, while you're doing a repair?
6: So quick answer.
7: I would probably give local heparin down the injured extremity but not systemic heparin.
9: Local heparin. And uh, Colonel Rasmussen uh, can tell you that uh, even with uh, shunt failure, it does not uh, lead to limb loss uh, necessarily. And so I, there's I,
6: a paper going to be presented at the WAST this year that looks at out a Joe DeBoe's multi-center ongoing study uh, funded in part by MRMC that answers that question in the largest series the answer is no.
7: I, right. I would say in closing of this case perhaps that uh, a lot of the work with shunting uh, for trauma came from Dave Dawson and the lab at the 59th Medical Wing before the war started. Yeah. And quite a lot of the early wartime experience with shunting uh, has been described by uh, Colonels Rasmussen and Klaus um, using the blood vascular registry or the GWAD vascular registry. So there's a lot of experience that uh, people can look to.
5: Thanks, Dr. Fang. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes left, and we have a complicated case. So we're going to get through this quickly. We're not going to go through every person. We're going to be asking lots of questions quickly. So we're back in Afghanistan. 2010 at a roll three with plenty of support. Situation is a firefight. One urgent surgical, one patient, but there are still troops in contact. There might still be additional casualties. Don't know the time of injury, 22-year-old male, gunshot wound to right chest, posterior axillary line. In the field, a point of injury, needle decompression times two. He's mildly hypothermic, heart rate's 143, blood pressure 150, SATs are 100%. He's in clear respiratory distress but maintaining his SATs, and a C collar was placed. Excellent. (laughs) 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 On on arrival... (laughs)
6: We had the same response, doctor.
5: (laughs) But it's important, you'll see. So on arrival, uh, he's still tachycardic. Now he's quite hypotensive, lower SATs. He's immediately intubated. He gets uh, IV access with a subclavian, starts getting transfused immediately with a trauma pack. Uh, 36 French chest tube was placed with 400 cc's of blood. On his secondary survey, he's got right chest ecchymosis. Non-tender exam, fast negative. His extremities are atraumatic. This is your patient.
6: Dr. Martin, what do you want to do? So, so
2: this is a guy who, as soon as he arrives, unless he's in arrest, I would have an x-ray plate down. First thing you do is shoot the chest x-ray, do your ultrasound, put the chest tube in. There's your, There's your x-ray. He's now what got, would you do? He's got a big right hemothorax with the chest tube in. Probably has a pretty large pulmonary contusion.
6: And was that the only wound, or is there another wound, an exit wound?
2: So you do you want to do a physical from...
6: exam as well? What's that? You want to do a complete physical exam, removing and exposing everything? Exactly.
9: There you go. What and about, uh, about his mediastinum? That's yeah, shifted. He's got the tension, hemothorax there. I don't see the fragment, so I want to know if it's in the belly.
5: Yeah. I want to know if it's in the belly. Awesome. And I want to know
9: distal pulses.
5: Okay. Okay. Um, Dr. Sams, what about you? What do you want? Do you want any more imaging? You want to get, you want to, who wants to take this patient to the CT scanner? Yeah.
3: <laughs> okay.
5: <dying>. <laughs> MRI, perhaps? Um, okay. So uh, they did, uh, just like you said, Dr. Jenkins, they uh, got a plain film. So there was no evidence of transdiaphragmatic passage of the bullet. FAST is negative. Patients hemodynamically unstable, still hypotensive and tachycardic. They placed a second uh, right-sided chest tube with a leader, that came out and they did what Dr. Martin suggested, a physical exam. The C collar, the ever important C collar for a single gunshot wound uh, was hiding what looked like a, another hole, which presumably the exit wound. So uh, uh, Dr. Fang.
7: So it looks like his uh, original wound and you can't always tell which is the entry, which is the exit, but he has a wound in his right chest and that looks like his left neck. So it goes across his torso through lots of high-value real estate in between, perhaps. Um, and he's, uh, he's had over a liter of blood out of his chest. So I think he merits a trip to the operating room. We need to also worry about his heart, esophagus, lungs, trachea, etc. cetera. Uh, but he needs D- to go to the operating room. And
5: Dr. Ricard, do you agree? Yes, I would agree. Dr. Isaac, do you agree? Yep. OK, so uh, Dr. Martin how are you going to explore this patient? So we it seems like the panel agrees he's going to go to the operating room and not to the scanner, Which, is, but uh, what, how are you going to explore him?
2: So, so I would start with a right thoracotomy and a left neck exploration. And, and if you're at the cache, you'll have two teams, and I would do those simultaneously. You can extend that clamshell if you need to. Uh, you also have to be worried about the belly. So this is a guy you definitely want to keep supine. You don't want to do you know, a posterior lateral thoracotomy or anything, but get in the right chest, get in the left neck, find the bleeding. Esophagus, trachea, all that, you know, none of that's immediately life-threatening.
5: Dr. Jenkins?
9: Sternotomy every time.
5: Val, sternotomy. Dr. Isaac?
3: Left, uh, right thoracotomy and neck.
5: Okay, and uh, Dr. Fang and Dr. Ricard, I don't think we've heard from you, which incisions? Incision?
7: And I, I think you could do either. Uh, the you no, must no, choose. Think, <laughs> no, no, no. The but knife I, is I in your hand. Which one?
6: Okay.
1: Dr. Ricard?
8: No, let's start off with the right uh, thoracotomy. With a so
6: three and three. It's an important, important point. of the points we teach yeah. everybody. This is a critical decision for this case. Dr. Skirbo has heard this discussion for us. He's a resident at UT. This is an important decision to make. Where do you cut? And for the non surgeons in the audience, it sounds like the surgeon should know where to cut, up and down or sideways.
5: It's right. not always that easy. It's <laughs> not that easy.
6: And the reason it makes a difference is if you go up and down, sometimes you can't get back here
5: from there. And sometimes you can.
6: And sometimes you can. All right. right.
5: So this patient, did have a, uh, this patient did have a median sternotomy. Pericardium was intact. There was some bleeding from the left chest, but there was a huge amount of bleeding from the right chest, active and significant bleedings from both of the chest tubes. So continued exploration uh, through the median sternotomy. The bullet uh, was a lo- it, there was a bullet wound to the lower chest wall. Injury to all three lobes on the right side. The diaphragm was intact. Uh, bullet hole was uh, anterior to T3 and posterior to the esophagus. So uh, at that time, tractotomy was not successful through the median sternotomy, uh, and the patient had continued hemorrhage. Now what? So your chest is open through a median sternotomy. Uh, you have been able to explore both pleural spaces, and there's still a lot of continued bleeding from the right side. And what you have is a transmedicinal gunshot wound. Uh, why don't we start with Dr. Martin?
2: So, so I would have been in a right thoracotomy, so I would have been right there looking at this injury.
5: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but actually, I,
2: actually, I think a median sternotomy is fine. You can get to the right <laughs> chest, people often say you can't. Uh, I mean, before losing four liters, I think the first thing you do with this injury is you clamp the hilum. Mm-hmm. Um, it, cool. You try and do tractotomies, and, and three low—you know, all three lobes are injured. You just do the, clamp the hilum up front. If it's not salvageable, you have to bite the bullet and do the pneumonectomy.
5: Anybody disagree? Okay, we have consensus. Okay, so um, they did clamp the hilum through the median sternotomy. Uh, so they advanced the ET tube with single lung ventilation and did a temporary chest closure. So this is a picture of uh, the patient with the pulmonary hilar clamp coming out of the median sternotomy.
6: What are you guys gonna do next? This is your patient. Go ahead. So so what this
2: guy's gonna die from is either hypoxic failure or right heart failure. Really, the best outcomes from, you know, pneumonectomy is 50 to 75% mortality. Probably the best outcomes that are being seen is if, if you have ECMO capability and they start going into that and put them on ECMO. Call, call Ray Fang and the lung alert team and get them in there. Call the lung yeah. team. Call the lung
6: team. That's right.
5: Now, I just want to know from the panel, has anybody ever seen a chest X-ray like this with the clamp on the pulmonary hilum on a chest X-ray? Dr. Isaac, have you ever seen no. a chest X-ray? Yes. No. Uh, Val? No. Dr. Jenkins, don't have don't you? I want to
9: see that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the x-ray with the clamp on it. Have you ever seen one, sir? I think I've seen this in an echo lecture. Yeah,
6: I, I, yeah, I've never left a clamp on the pulmonary hilum and closed the skin.
5: Well, the skin was open.
6: The chest. The chest, yeah. yes.
5: Point, yeah. Okay, so, um, so this patient uh, was, we're not going to go through the ICU management because we don't have time, but he was brought back to the ICU for continued evaluation, and uh, he did undergo additional workup. Would you guys have bronched and done an EGD given that he had a transmedicinal gunshot wound, Dr. Ricard? Uh,
9: not deployed.
5: No, not deployed. Dr. Jenkins, what about you, sir?
9: Well, I'm gonna trust my intraoperative exam that uh, you told me exactly what, tr- what the trajectory was and I examined those uh, structures already, so uh, I'm okay with that.
2: Well, you, you know there's no injury on the left if the chest x-ray is normal. There's
6: no pneumothorax. And- well,
2: just
9: and you do
6: the right thoracotomy so you can see the esophagus right there, right? so you can see it. He
5: could. Yeah, he not through immediate... Half
6: the panel
2: could right, see Right, half the, the panel
5: could what, see what it. What you don't want to do is temporarily <laughs>
2: drop this guy's SATs during a bronch and have him code, because again, right. his right heart is going to be in trouble and is, he's not going to be oxygenating very well.
1: Val, what about additional imaging? Um, at, at this point, uh, he, he's stable? Or?
5: Yeah, I mean, he's hypoxic and he's on presser, so stable is a relative term. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I don't know if there's any other imaging that's going to help me here. Dr. Isaac, would you that. get additional imaging?
3: No, I think I would. Uh, yeah. I think this guy is in pretty extremes. He needs uh, a lot of resuscitation and stabilization. So imaging is the last thing that I would what, do. Did they explore the neck?
5: They didn't explore the neck, but they did get a CTA of the neck. So, uh, we'll, so the, with the a clamp on the pulmonary hilum, so obviously he was stably unstable. Uh, they were able to get additional imaging, which I'll just quickly show you here, and then we'll finish this case up uh, and see if there's any audience questions, and then we'll move on. But what you can see on this is this is the tract of the bullet, and like I've learned many times before, the tract of the bullet tells the story. So any comments on this, uh, Dr. Ricard or Dr. Jenkins, anybody from the panel, do you guys have comments on this film? And I would it? just
2: say I'm very happy that I saw it going through the vertebral body. Because right there you know it's posterior to esophagus and aorta, so you don't have to worry about the rest of the mediastinal structures at least.
5: Yeah, that's a really good point. Dr. Fang, any comments?
7: No comments.
5: (laughs) Okay. So, now what are you going to do? Now you have all this imaging, he still has a clamp on the pulmonary hilum, he has to go back to the operating room, right? I mean, he can't stay with the clamp on the pulmonary hilum. What are you going to do in the operating room, Dr. Jenkins?
3: Uh,
9: it, it's, it's tough it's, You're going to have to, I think, take a What's the chest tube output been?
5: No, minimal
9: Minimal, okay, so it's definitely bleeding from the lung It's not coming from uh, you know, Hidden intercostal or something like that That uh, you're being duped So uh, I, I think you're going to Have to go after uh, What you believe is the most injured uh, Segment of that lung Do a, a segmental resection uh, Loosen that clamp, see what happens um, so a partial pneumonectomy uh, to start.
5: I think when they took him back to the operating room because the clamp was on the hilum, they, had, they decided to do a right pneumonectomy, uh, in which he lost minimal blood. So somebody already mentioned this. What's the next step? He is not doing well after a right pneumonectomy. The mortality for this is high. We're going to keep him at the roll three. CCAT or call the lung team? Who would not call the lung team? Okay. Great, so PlayStream was placed on ECMO. Um, Dr. Frank, do you have any comments? Quickly, we're almost out of time.
7: So, I would say, again, usually these people die from uh, right heart failure because the right heart is thin-walled and not used to having such a large pressure load to it when you take out one lung. Uh, historically, all the traumatic pneumonectomies we had related to wartime injury, up until the time we introduced ECMO capability, had all died, um, and then we got survivors afterwards. Um, yep. So I definitely, and, and civilian experience also mimics that, that the survival has improved with, uh, with ECMO use. You know, in this case, if you, I think you'd want VA. Yeah,
5: and I know we have some people from the uh, ECMO team now. Any other comments on ECMO? Uh, now, I would just anything? say
2: this, this is one injury where young people tend to do worse. You know, when you do a pneumonectomy, young kids who don't have pulmonary hypertension or any predisposition, they they do not do well when you take a lung out. So, again, they're going to go into right heart failure. They're going to be hypoxic. I think that this was exactly the right thing to do, get this kid on ECMO.
5: And that's what they did. And you can see from this compilation of pictures, it's incredibly resource intensive, but the patient was put on ECMO. You can see the surgical teams and the ECMO team at the bottom. But in the center, the large picture is the patient before he got on to the C-130 to go back to Larmsi. This was the first case of ECMO uh, transfer from Afghanistan, from a theater of war, back to Lansoul. And this patient uh, did very well, actually walked out of the hospital here in in San Antonio a couple weeks later. we have gone through our time very quickly, so we don't have time for any audience questions. Jane,
1: can I just say something? Yes, but uh, yes. any
5: last panel comments. Just, they have just, to be quick. We're yeah, going to get thrown off the Being a part stage. of the
1: ECMO um, team at SAMC, um, just keep this case in mind. Uh, if any of you are attending the session tomorrow about forward surgical care, um, there have been some changes in the capability that we need to talk about as a community um, to be able to make something like that happen that yeah. don't currently exist.
8: Sorry, can I make one, one point? Because you had a Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't that but that
5: was the first survivor of Yes, sir. Thank you for saying that. Nova Lung Survivor in 2009. So, yes, so
6: both of those capabilities have really improved care. I first met, I think, Dr. Fang in 2006 when he came down with a lung tame from a pneumonectomy patient that died. Uh, so that's been a big improvement big in care.
5: improvement in care. It's great. Okay, thank you all very much for your attention. Really appreciate it. Hand to the panel members. I just quickly have to say thank you to the joint trauma system to all the people that have helped out our panel members and to dallas and and please remember to fill out the survey and lastly i just want to thank all the military members and nations who risk their lives every day i hope we can help you
2: and that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the eastern association for the surgery of trauma you can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the east website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.